0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people.
1: British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend
0: Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 17th, 2020, and this is episode 220. I'm Scott DeLunenbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, Scott talks to BC Today's Shannon Waters for a recap of the BC Legislature's short session. And then I'm back on to talk about the latest climate plans from the federal and provincial governments. First, thanks to the 102 people who contribute every month. A special thanks goes out to Zach for joining you can join Zach and those 101 other people at patreon.com slash politicoast. And if you sign up as a patron, you can be one of the first people to know about what's happening for our special year-end internet streaming live show. We're planning to do a crossover Politicoast Can Report leg-and-boot media extravaganza on December 30th in the evening. Patrons will be the first to know when and where that will be, likely YouTube They'll get the link. We'll send it out via Facebook and Twitter. And if we have a show next week, we'll make sure to include it there. So stay tuned to all of those places for how to find out about that. And as always, Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to free trial
2: Joining me today is BC Today's reporter, Shannon Waters. Shannon, welcome back.
1: Hi, Scott. Always nice to be on the show.
2: Yeah, it's been a little while since you've been on here. I checked. I think it was August when you were last on, and a oh, few man. things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> So a few things have happened in Victoria since we last had you on. Probably both.
1: (laughs) Yeah, just a couple of things. We got a whole new chamber in there. Not a whole new chamber because not all the MLAs are physically present in the chamber, but there are an awful lot of new faces in the new parliament.
2: Yeah, that was, I think, the big story of the fall was the election. What was it like having to do that remotely and have a kind of virtual campaigns going on?
1: It was definitely different. I don't have a ton of context. I have covered a provincial election before, but I was doing it from a regional radio newsroom up north. So not doing covering the leaders campaigns and really focusing on a broad sort of reporting of what the Various parties were promising. Definitely some frustration for access continues. That's likely just going to be a fixture of my life for at least the next year or so. But there were also some interesting... I guess benefits to having the campaign go virtual. There were a lot of Zoom events that like maybe wouldn't normally have become public. They would have just taken place uh, within party and party supporters and we got to see some peaks at those. And also, I feel like by the time we got to end of September, October, everybody was pretty comfortable on the various digital platforms and things went a lot more smoothly than say they would have if we were doing an election back in the spring, but also probably not as smoothly as they would have gone if it hadn't been until 2021.
2: Yeah. And uh, at least one party discovered that didn't necessarily go so smoothly. Zoom calls as well.
1: Yes.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So that was the election. Anything stand out or was surprising that uh, happened during that?
1: Um, Time is meaningless now, so I'm having trouble like picking out a lot from the campaign itself. I think sort of high-level thoughts, I was surprised at how little pushback there was on the snap election call. Like I feel like people were frustrated for maybe a week with Premier Horgan making that decision to send us to a snap election in the fall of the pandemic, but very quickly settled into, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go vote in a few weeks. There wasn't a lot of resentment that seemed to linger around there. And then when it comes to the results, like the Fraser Valley, I was not expecting the NDP to have such a strong showing there. I think I I predicted them at 53 or 54 seats, but was in the Fraser Valley. I just did not have on my radar for them having a breakthrough there.
2: Yeah, that was probably, I think, the biggest surprise was just how far they managed to push inland up the valley.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: so that was the election. We had a fairly long gap, I think compared to some previous years between the, Results coming in, in, or or at least, I guess, election night. Just the results slowly trickled in uh, over the next two weeks. And then the legislature actually returning, which got last week about the throne speech, which both feels very long ago and pretty recent. Uh, (laughs) And that's because we only had a two-week session, which is somewhat unusual. But let's at least touch on kind of the highlights of that very short Return to the legislature.
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting one. Just two weeks, which aside from the emergency session in March is the shortest sitting that I've covered in the three years and change that I've been working for BC today. Yeah, and it pretty much went as described. Like we, we knew fairly early on the premier signaled that they were only really interested in sort of one piece of legislation. And that was enabling the spending that is going to support this recovery benefit that will pay a maximum of 1000 to $500 depending on your living situation and based on your 2019 income. So we ended up with two pieces of legislation. The first one actually allows the government to delay introducing a budget. So we learned today from the finance minister that the 2021 budget will come out on April 20th, which is a full two months almost later than it would normally be tabled. Normally it would be tabled in February. There was some legislation to allow a bit of a delay into March due to the pandemic. And now it's been pushed into April. That bill passed, I think it was yesterday. And then today they finished up debate on the supplementary estimates, which allocates the funding to cover the recovery benefit and a couple of other bits and pieces. And then they did another supply bill, and it was all done within a matter of about 20 minutes. And the lieutenant governor came in and said, good job, everybody, and gave royal assent, and then it was over. That oh, so must be quick. Eight, yeah, eight.
2: On the... Sorry, Dawn.
1: No, I just like, yeah, eight days of sitting, and then it was all done. And now we actually have the parliamentary calendar for next year. So I can book my vacation days in advance if I'm able to go anywhere by that point in
2: time. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully the uh, fat scenes will be rolled out and we'll be safe to travel by then.
1: Fingers crossed.
2: But yeah, that, that was, was definitely a quick sitting. I've looked on the government, or sorry, on the legislature's website, and they don't even have any of those bills that Royal send. Only one looks like it's even passed from what they've put on there. So they've definitely been driving hard at getting this session wrapped up.
1: Yeah, and it does take them a little while to post it online once everything has passed. But yeah, pretty much everything happened either last night or today.
2: Anything uh, particularly interesting happened in the House while those were making their way through or during question, question period? Or has it been a pretty boring session in terms of legislative drama?
1: No, there was some good stuff. It definitely, I hated it less than I hated the summer session. I think that's mostly because like we're getting used to the routine and there were a few less a, a few less minister your mic is on mute or like we'll have to come back to the member from such and such because they do not appear to be online at this time. So that was good to see things flow a little more smoothly. Question period focused on the same issues over and over again, but it's been interesting to see the new ministers and the new critics start interacting, seeing who can get under whose skin, who is a strong performer, although it's really been quite limited in that respect, given that we've only had eight question periods so far. But yeah, starting to get a feel for how this 42nd parliament is likely to function, which is fun.
2: In terms of that, who's so far standing out as the among the new ministers or new MLAs or new critics as a good performer or someone to really keep an eye on?
1: Like I said, it's early, so I will qualify my comments by saying that. One of the things I was struck by, though, was our new jobs minister, Ravi Kallon, seems to have a bit of a knack for getting under the liberal skin. He's also been a bit condescending to some of the rookie MLAs who've been asking him questions, which is amusing on my end anyways. He'll talk about the newly appointed minister or compliment someone on asking their very first question He's also been dodging questions. The Liberals have focused quite heavily on the recovery grant program that was introduced for small and medium-sized businesses back in September. I believe the allocation was about $300 million. And so they're asking how many businesses have gotten that money? How much has been paid out? How many businesses are actually getting help from this fund? And the only figure that the minister has so far provided is that 1,400 businesses in total are somewhere in the process of having applied and being considered eligible and allocated whatever their grant funding is. So not a lot of answers on that front. On the drama side of things, the new liberal health critic, Renee Merrifield, is a very distinctive delivery. She There's a lot of pacing involved. She's really got the drama down. So that makes her interesting to watch.
2: All right. And in terms of question period, is this looking like it's going to be more rambunctious than in the past? The past couple years, or a little more settled down, or is this one of those things where it's really hard to tell because everything's over Zoom and people's mutes mics are muted.
1: <laughs> that was one thing I had a good chuckle about earlier this week. I can't remember which minister it was, but she was delivering an answer that the opposition wasn't particularly impressed with, and so those in the chamber were heckling and. The speaker said, members, she can't hear you (laughs) because when you're speaking, like the people in the chamber don't have any input if you're on the remote. So just reminding members that like sometimes heckling isn't going to be as productive as you thought it was going to be. The speaker has said he's made it his mission to have question period become as boring as possible. And I'm not entirely sure what that means. I assume it means like more substantive stuff, less heckling, name calling, etc., which certainly doesn't seem to have been the case so far. Lots and lots of heckling, lots of blame still back and forth. We're hearing about the 16 years of the liberal government neglect, etc., from the NDP side. Meanwhile, the liberals are accusing the government of having called the snap election and then not really doing a whole lot in the aftermath of it. They introduced a couple of pieces of private members legislation this session that would actually realize NDP campaign promises. One of them would cap delivery fees, that food delivery apps are allowed to charge restaurants, which is something both the NDP and Liberals promised. The other is a Pay Transparency Act. Stephanie Cadu has introduced this legislation multiple times, and it's always died on the order paper. So there's been a lot of calls in the chamber of call the bill, trying to pressure the NDP to move these policies forward.
2: But so far, they show no interest in uh, helping the liberals pass any of their private members bills, I presume. And that's unlikely to change.
1: Not so far. I have my year-ender with the premier tomorrow and I do plan to ask him because he said multiple times, I don't care where good policy comes from. I want good ideas originate on both sides of the aisle and we're happy to engage and whatever. I suspect the justification for this session has just been a lack of time. Like there, it was only eight days, but it is fairly difficult to pass multiple pieces of legislation in that time, given constraints around, like, you can't introduce a bill as soon as you've, or sorry, you can't debate a bill as soon as you've introduced it, typically, although that rule got waived today for the supply bill. So I have a feeling they'll cry lack of time when it comes to that, but it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to the spring session, which is set to start on March 1st. I don't know when the throne speech is going to be because, of course, that triggers prorogation and anything that's on the order paper gets wiped. But yeah, it'll be something I'm keeping my eye on, especially because the NDP has such a large majority now that they can pretty much just do whatever they want to when it comes to legislation and policy.
2: Pivoting a bit, today the fiscal update came out and BC... Announced it was gonna have a projected deficit about thirteen point six billion, which if I recall is more or less where it was during the last update that came out in the fall.
1: Yeah, there've been a few of them now since we got the budget in February. And of course, there's more spending that's been introduced along the way, more recovery measures, etc. cetera. I believe we were looking at about twelve point seven or maybe twelve point eight last time around. So it has gone up a bit. But not astronomical increase, although when you're getting into the billions, like it's easy to lose. Even if it's a, a one numeral jump, it's still a lot of still a lot of money. But a lot of sort of very positive looking indicators on the economic side of things, consumer spending. Overall, has recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Spending is still down on certain certain categories, fuel being one of them. People are still not doing a lot of traveling around, so they're not buying a lot of gas. Yeah, exactly. They sure are burning through the spending on gardening and like home improvement type items, as well as electronics and appliances, though. So those have all fully recovered. Yeah, um, no, I was actually. Sorry, One of Mark? the
2: things that I'm surprised to see in there is that uh, retail s- sales have only dropped by something like 0.6%, which is way lower than I would have guessed.
1: Yeah, it was interesting to look at some of the numbers and be like, oh, okay, so we're almost back to where we were. Uh, I wrote my piece today, mostly comparing to the February budget, because the numbers there are closer. What we have now is closer to the February budget than to the fiscal update that we got in July in a lot of categories.
2: I suppose it's good news, more or less.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. Two things that kind of struck me is that the housing market is just, I don't know what the government is going to have to do, but housing start sales and prices are all back up above uh, where they were at in February. So lots of, I guess, mostly good news on the housing front, although the finance minister was asked, what does this mean for your housing affordability agenda? If prices keep going up no matter what you seem to do in even in the face of a global pandemic like how are you going to deliver on affordable housing so it will be interesting to see how the new housing minister david eby handles that one
2: yeah Jordan. bad news i suppose I, I gather a fair bit of the housing demand it's just the fact that without people going out to spend on the things they usually do fewer trips fewer meals out there's just been a lot of savings and like household savings have actually climbed quite a bit during the pandemic particularly for those who were lucky enough to be able to still be employees throughout the period which also means that just a lot of people now have down payments ready that weren't Mm -hmm. planning on it back in February.
1: Yeah and even people who were like spring tends to be when the market picks up a bit and that carries into the summer and certainly for the spring like people weren't Buying houses. Like nobody was doing anything. So there was pent up demand to deal with, and that seems to still be driving things along. The other significant development is that ICBC is actually forecast to turn a profit this year, and not even a little one. Back in February, they were forecasting about 86 million in profits coming in. And that has now bounced up to 410 million for the current fiscal year. That's the projection.
2: I'm guessing this is probably in large part due to vehicle miles traveled falling as there are fewer commuters and much fewer road trips going on.
1: Yeah, so fewer accidents, fewer claim payouts related to those accidents. Although the finance minister played a little bit coy because the government has promised to deliver any pandemic-related savings back to drivers in the form of a rebate, most likely. And she said, but well, the fiscal year is not over and we need to see where the numbers go by the time we get to March. So I wouldn't expect a whole lot on that front until that point in time. Although we already know um, that ICBC has applied for uh, a rate decrease. They went to the BCUC asking for a 15% drop on basic insurance earlier this week. So that should be coming out, I believe it'll take effect in May, which is also when we switch to the new no-fault system. So that's going to be interesting.
2: Yeah, it definitely will be, I think. The trial lawyers might not like it, but I expect a lot of other people will be pretty happy with that, particularly if it saves them 15%.
1: Yeah, I think overall, the NDP had promised a 20% rate drop. So that will include decreases in optional insurance, which they don't have to ask the BCUC, the BC Utilities Commission, for permission to do. They can just change things up on their own. So yeah, I think if the NDP does deliver what is promised, people are going to be very happy. The question is, is it all going to go as smoothly as they probably need it to in order for people to not get annoyed?
2: So before we move on from the fiscal update, I guess the other big item or headline out of that beyond what we talked about is what the overall debt levels are. And this is something that opposition parties love to bane on about. But what is the broad debt situation for the province? Yeah,
1: it's gone up and the province is... is likely planning to borrow as we go into the next budget as well although the finance minister likes to point out there's prudence built into the budget so they do have about a billion in contingencies in case things go sideways down the road and the other thing being like bc has an enviable credit rating and so it can continue to borrow while maintaining a manageable debt ratio and i'll let you do the numbers on that front because i did not cover those today
2: so overall, we've gone up to $60.5 billion in taxpayer-supported debt and $88 billion between that and the self-supported debt, which only gives us a taxpayer-supported debt to GDP ratio of 20.8%, which, like you said, it's a pretty enviable position to be in. I haven't checked where the other provinces are, but they're all much higher than that. I know a couple of years ago, Ontario, I think, was looking at 100% or coming up fairly close to that. So overall, that's a very low level of debt and pretty comfortable. And between the 16 years of BC Liberal governments, as the opposition likes to say, in the last couple of years, that's been a pretty tightly run ship. And that's gives them plenty of room for situations like this.
1: Yeah, particularly, I think if the economic indicators do pick up the way the province is thinking that they will going forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because the last couple of years with the NDP have started to put the lie to the characterization that the NDP just spends frivolously and can't manage finances very well. Like we haven't You've seen our debt balloon. We are in the middle of a pandemic and there has been a lot of spending. But as you say, things are still very much within a manageable range. So it'll be interesting to see what budget 2021 brings.
2: Yeah, this government seems to be very conscious of that reputation and gone out of their way to try and avoid that.
1: Yeah, I would not be surprised considering a lot of not quite so many now, but a lot of them have been in the legislature and heard a lot about that over the years, in the dismal decade in the 90s and blah, blah, blah.
2: Speaking of the legislature, they're going to be going on recess over the holidays, but they will be back next year. So what can we expect in January and later?
1: Um, I expect January, we'll see committees get back to work. I don't have the schedules yet, but the parliamentary calendar shows that the House will go back on March 1st. So there's going to be basically two, nearly two full months of sitting days before the budget is introduced. So normally the spring session doesn't see a ton of legislation because you get the throne speech and the budget, and then all of the estimates have to be debated to fund all the various ministry priorities and operations. So this time around, I think we're likely to see a lot of legislation go through ahead of the budget, and then we'll get the budget at the end of April, and there's going to be, I think, about six or seven weeks after that, I think six sitting weeks, where the legislature is still in session, and that's when the estimates debate, et cetera, will take place. And there's a, we've just gone through an election. It was a few months ago now, but like the results only came out not all that long ago. Also, time is meaningless. So the, the NDPs basically needs to start delivering on some of those campaign promises.
2: Yeah, those, the only, the Horgan Bucks, is that what we're calling this recovery benefit chats? Has it got a snappy name yet?
1: I've heard a few people throw around Horgan Bucks, but I don't feel like it's stuck. Right. Yeah. Not the way okay. that Ralph Bucks is for Alberta. But yeah, so the applications for that recovery benefit actually open tomorrow, Uh, So December 18th, which will be, I assume, the day this podcast is published. (laughs) And should start rolling out within days if you do your if you fill out the application properly. But that is the only only one that will have been acted on by the time we move into 2021. The only campaign promise.
2: Yeah, and even though their platform was fairly typical kind of continuation of the past couple of years they still have a fair bit to act on that. So do we have any idea what's going to be some of the legislation and which of those priorities are gonna be picked out for the winter and spring session?
1: Yeah, so some of them will be able to be done via regulation is my understanding. I believe that's how the free contraception thing is going to come in. So that could be implemented, if I'm correct in my understanding, without the legislature necessarily being in session. You just make some regulatory changes and start implementing the program, although they may need to allocate some funding to back that up. So I'm not 100% sure. I spoke with the housing minister this week, David Eby. And he said that the renter's rebate will likely require legislation. So that could be something that is introduced in the spring. That's the $400 a year that's going to be means tested and delivered to renters. Basically, according to the minister, as an acknowledgement that government policies have really privileged homeowners over the years. Under the assumption that people will eventually move on from renting to buying a home, which is not really the case for literally thousands of people anymore so we're going to start having this renter's rebate going forward although i will note that the ndp promised a renter's rebate the last time around and that didn't happen a lot of the a lot of the priorities will also be attached to the budget too so there's i believe 250 million new dollars coming in child care i don't think those can be allocated before the next budget comes out So that will have to wait, although I don't think it will require legislation. I don't have the platform in front of me. So there's a lot of things that they're going to be able to move or that people will be waiting on. So I'll go back to the two private members bills that the liberals have introduced, both of which were campaign promises for the NDP, and I believe will require legislation to realize Pay transparency legislation. Like I said, this is something that Liberal MLA Stephanie Cadu has introduced a couple of times. It would require companies with um, more than 50 employees to report on an annual basis what they pay their staff and what bonuses are paid with a breakdown by gender so you can compare positions by gender. I don't know if the NDP disagrees with that approach, but they have promised pay equity legislation as a move towards equal uh, pay for equal work. So we'll see if that one comes in. And then, like I said, the bill to cap fees that are charged to restaurants by food delivery apps is another thing that the NDP promised on the campaign trail and I think would require legislation. Although the jobs minister said this week that they're actually talking to these app companies about the need to do something about the fees that they charge. So I don't know, maybe they're just going to persuade them to do it on their own.
2: Perhaps be a little weird approach, but maybe they'll do that. It is also a little weird that the NDP after all these years, hasn't taken up the pay equity thing until or even now. And still just in the one BC liberal private member is trying to push for. Just feel really out of character.
1: Yeah, don't get me started on that one because we'll be here all night. (laughs) But I I will just say that the first time Stephanie Cadu introduced that legislation while I was a reporter here at the legislature, Horgan was asked about it immediately afterwards and he suggested that the bill was just a political stunt on Cadu's part, which... I didn't think was a great look. Like, yes, I think it is perfectly fine to point out that she spent years as a cabinet minister and didn't do anything on the file, but simply dismissing something that could mean so much to basically half the population in this province just isn't a great look.
2: Speaking of that, I think I've probably taken up enough of your time, but is there anything else we didn't touch on here that's worth a quick mention?
1: I will just mention the final report that came out from our former speaker. I have no idea where it's going to go. The Legislative Assembly Management Committee, who is responsible for dealing with things in and around the legislature, is a bit of a black box. And so far, the House leaders have not really been very forthcoming about how they plan to deal with what the speaker outlined in his report. One of them being that it, he delivered a confidential memo to them outlining some Me Too style allegations that had happened some years back in the House. But that Plekus felt were he, he acknowledged that they were not proven, but he did feel there was some strong corroboration and that they should be looked into. And he's now alleging that Lamsy just didn't do anything about it. And there's still a lot of moving parts from his previous reports that haven't been tied up. There's still an ongoing police investigation into goings on at the legislature more than two years later. So that's something I'll be keeping an eye out for when the committee gets back to work. And then also just going forward once we're back in session and there's maybe a little more access to the House leaders on a regular basis because this December session was a bit of a whirlwind.
2: Okay. Yeah, it's kind of weird that a former speaker who's now since departed is continuing to put out reports, but uh, Plekis has Um, been nothing if not unusual in uh, his time as speaker.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very fair description. And the other thing was, he thought he was going to have another year to get his work done. And then the snap election came and that was it. His time was up. So...
2: Right. Shannon, thanks for joining me tonight. Why don't you let our listeners know where they can find your work and social media?
1: You can find my writing. We do frequently publish stories that are not locked up behind our paywall. So that's over at politics.today.news. You can also see coverage of Alberta and Ontario over there if that's your bag. And then I live on Twitter as all reporters do these days my work handle is at bc today official so that's question period coverage and legislation and live tweeting of various government and opposition news conferences and then if you want to see pictures of my gorgeous but grumpy feline you can follow me at so bitter so sweet
2: sure thanks for joining me tonight
1: always a pleasure scott
0: Moving on to our next segment, carbon taxes keep going up. The big announcements in this last week were the, it was weird. It was on Friday afternoon, I think, that the federal liberals dropped their expanded next phase of their climate plan, which is usually the day you drop news you don't want to get press. And if you're the government that ran on a climate plan, you would think they'd want to actually get some attention to it.
2: So I'm actually wondering if the rule that Fridays are the take out the trash day, isn't as applicable as it used to be, but with social media and everything, you know, it's no longer the case that people are getting the the daily newspaper. And if you don't make it by the end of day print deadline on a Friday, it's not going to be in the Sunday paper sort of thing. And, And now people are sitting at home all weekend on social media. It, Fridays might not be as much of a low key day as it used to be.
0: That's fair enough. You can get an article on the internet in five, 10 minutes. You can get a tweet out in seconds, so people can get their hot takes out pretty quick. And on the weekend, the columnists tend not to be working, so they can't decry your hundred and I have it written down. They can't decry your hundred and seventy dollar a ton carbon tax, which is coming in twenty thirty that was a headline that I think maybe they wanted to have people talk less about. And maybe the depth that we'll get into in a minute of this plan would have been something more valuable to talk about.
2: Yeah. So the carbon tax number took all the headlines was the main focus, but it's actually part of a broader set of policies that build on the climate policies the liberal government put in during the last term back when they had a majority
0: so this is a plan built off of five pillars with the aim of exceeding the 23 with the aim of exceeding the 2030 targets the overall plan is an additional 15 billion dollars in spending some of that is spread over 10 years and some of it is over a year or two so it's a bit hard to say how much additional per year it will cost. I didn't go all the way into the associated budget documents, which I'm sure were at the appendix. The bulk of these reductions are going to come from the oil and gas industry and then as well from heavy industry reductions in buildings and electricity. Basically, the big emitters are where we need to make the big reductions. So the five fa- the five pillars of it, as they describe it, are making the places Canadians live and gather more affordable by cutting energy waste. In other words, more energy-efficient homes and buildings. They're not the pithiest top-line pillars they're going for. No, I think I'll just do the short form so that we can get through this, because there's a lot in here. Number two is essentially clean transit and clean power. Important things. They just match those two together, though. They don't really otherwise go together. Number three is ensuring pollution is the carbon tax. Number four is supporting industry. It's a vague one. We'll come back to that. And number five is getting nature to do our work for us. It's the planting trees section. So let's start with number one, the making buildings more green. The highlight of this section is the $2.6 billion being invested over seven years for the $5,000 home efficiency grants that I think we talked about in the Throne speech episode a couple of weeks back cuz that number sounded familiar.
2: The home efficiency grants and rebates it's been a fairly long-standing part of the liberal's climate policy so not a huge amount new there I would have to go back and check about like exact dollar figures and number of grants that they've budgeted for but it, uh, fundamentally, it's not a new announcement.
0: I think it is an additional $2.6 though, for this program to do another $700,000 700, grants. So that's promising. There are still a lot of buildings to retrofit. So, got to throw money at it.
2: Yes. In fact, more than $2.6 billion worth of retrofits, like at least an order of magnitude more than that would probably be what it would take if you wanted to. To retrofit every building maybe even two orders of magnitude
0: yeah and that section is going for private homeowners so that's relying on individuals to foot part of the bill there like five thousand dollars will do some support and for some newer homes that'll probably be enough but some older homes probably need a lot more than five thousand dollars to get efficient to get up to the efficiency standards we want there's also a lot of money being pumped into continuing the low-income retrofit programs there's a new low-cost loan program being rolled out for homeowners and landlords to help them as well. The other big number in this section is the $1.5 billion over three years going to cities and municipalities to support greening their community buildings, whether that's retrofitting an existing community center or library, or just the new ones being built, making sure they are energy efficient.
2: That definitely helps, but once again, $1.5 billion is not enough to completely handle that whole area. So it, it's going to be needing to rely on cities and provinces coming in with matching, or in fact, more than matching funds. But yeah, it does help ease the transition.
0: Moving into the next section on clean transit and clean power, let's start with talking about Transportation, and this is broken down into three sections. There's zero emission vehicles, so they'll keep throwing money at that. Another almost $300 million to keep the zero emission vehicle incentive program, the $5,000 rebate you can get on a electric car continuing over the next two years. There's an additional $150 million over three years for expanding, charging and refueling stations. And then there's talk about aligning standards with the new U.S. administration to promote greater zero emission vehicle availability. So talking about aligning supply chains so that the cars being manufactured across North America are more likely to be zero emission vehicle than not. Get us all on the same track. Now that Trump isn't pres- going to be president.
2: That is going to defend a bit on how much Biden can do with some unfriendly courts and a Senate that will, more likely than not, depending on how Georgia goes, not be friendly to him either.
0: I suspect a lot of the standards and stuff that's being talked about is executive order, but I'm not the deep in the U.S. Yeah, but- politics and what he can and can't do.
2: Yeah, but I have a feeling executive orders might be a little more constrained when now that John Roberts is not even the swing justice.
0: We can only do so much in Canada. Where we apparently aren't that ambitious, weirdly, is on the electrifying public transportation section. There weren't really dollar numbers on, and this was the like expand transit section of the plan, all it really talks about is continuing to work with municipalities and provinces to electrify and build out transit. But there was no big dollar amount slapped on this section other than the $1.5 billion the Canada Infrastructure Bank's growth plan has targeted to expand and accelerate zero emission buses, specifically. Like, we need money for Skytrains.
2: Yeah, we need a lot of money for Skytrains. And probably the reason it isn't in there is because they want the option to do kind of project by project announcements. Because when you're spending, you know, $5 billion, or $2 billion, whatever the amount is, or in, Mont- in Montreal's case where they're putting in something like 90 kilometers of new transit lines, which for reference is basically the entire transit system of Vancouver as it exists right now. It's roughly that length. When you're putting all of that in, you want to be able to not have the announcement be tucked away in a report that the media and some podcasters will read, but not many other people will. So I can see why there being the little vague there, that would at least be nice to have a broad, okay, even if we're not doing project by project announcements. We're going to put whatever number of billion in capital expenditures going forward and we'll dole it out as we decide. It's
0: a good way to inflate your the, plan from 15 billion to 30 or more.
2: Yeah. On the other hand with like, buses, this is the sort of thing that most transit agencies have a f- fairly regular turnover in their fleets So just having a fund that goes out and supports them would make a lot more sense than the kind of wanting to keep your powder dry for big transit spending announcements.
0: The other part of this section is that we will have a national active transportation strategy to encourage walking, transit use, etc., bicycling across the country
2: sure the NDP will be happy about that because they've had a national cycling strategy or something along those lines and all their platforms as long as I've been reading them. But it's one of those things where unlike, say big massive capital projects like a SkyTrain line or national standards on automobiles this really active transportation really is like the epitome of a local issue. And making it a national strategy is maybe not the best use of time and resources i see a
0: value here in terms of setting minimum standards not necessarily saying vancouver should do this specific bike path or whatever but saying each city should aim for 50 percent or whatever percent of act trans of trips by active transportation and then and providing funds is what the federal government can do. That can be the next stage of the strategy to help them get there. Also, even just little things like making sure each province is consistent with how wide a bike lane should be. So if you're a cyclist in Ottawa who then moves to Vancouver, you don't suddenly have an entirely different infrastructure network to get used to. We live in one country.
2: Although in that case, although those standards are typically set at the provincial level, or... Sometimes city too, but yeah, typically that sort of transportation engineering standards more local than federal. But regardless, it's also the sort of thing that you, if you do want to set minimum standards, you actually need some real teeth in it because I don't think the federal government constitutionally can tell cities every you know, road they build has to be include a bike lane on it or triple you know, A biking infrastructure. So instead, you actually have to use the power of the purse quite aggressively to nudge that way. And it's not exactly clear that's what they want to do here in order to be effective. We'll
0: look at the strategy when it comes out. One of the areas the federal government does have authority is over rail, marine, and aviation. And they group that together with heavy-duty vehicles in another section on transit transportation where some of their efforts are a little more vague. They talk about Continuing 100% tax write-off for commercial zero-emission me- zero vehicles, the light, medium, and heavy-duty classes. There's efforts in this plan to implement a... to reduce emissions in small engines and other devices, used ATVs. A lot of consultation still sticking around in this one because I think heavy-duty vehicles are a difficult one to bring emissions down in.
2: Yeah, they're, they're quite... Uh... Difficult both because they tend to have fairly high energy demands compared to, say, a small car or passenger vehicles in general. And at the same time, also typically require a lot more or typically will operate for a lot more hours a day than a personal vehicle where you'll drive it 20 kilometers, park it where you can charge it for an hour. eight and then drive it back. These are vehicles that are operating for eight, twelve, sometimes longer hours per day, which just makes the charging logistics more challenging. And we'll we'll get into this in a bit, but on the BC Climate Accountability Report, heavy vehicles is actually the area that's seen the largest growth percentage-wise in terms of emissions in the province here, which is not great and underscore some of the challenges. But to
0: power all those vehicles, we will need cleaner power because a lot of Canada's electricity is still coming from coal and other fossil fuel industries. There is an additional $964 million over four years to advance smart renewable energy and grid modernization. So wind and solar and additional power storage and transmission lines that are more efficient an additional $300 million over five years to ensure rural and remote and Indigenous communities can get off diesel and generators by 2030. A lot of smaller communities don't have, aren't connected to the grid, right? So the only electricity they have comes off big diesel generators where they just get fuel shipped in. Changing them over to clean energy is both good for the local community and just good for our climate goals. So that's a...
2: Yeah, now that... Those sorts of issue or those sorts of applications do present some challenges, though. Unlike putting renewables in the broader grid where your demand is spread over tens of thousands to millions of customers, small communities have a much smaller, you know, pool of demand, and that also means that it's gonna be more intermittent and the any discrepancies between the intermittency of the renewables and the intermittency of the demand is going to be much more pronounced when you're talking about power in an entire community's power just with that, with no yeah, like You can
0: put a bunch of solar panels in a community in northern Nunavut where they'll charge up for half the year, but there's a big chunk of the year where they get no sun, and so you need to factor that into your plan so it's a very difficult challenge
2: yes now one proposals batteries but the other one that i've somewhat interested in Mm -hmm. is using small modular reactors for that sort of application where a shipping container size reactor or two get put into a small community that just powers those needs and there's some stuff in here about that isn't there
0: yeah, there's a discussion of developing a small modular reactor action plan by the end of 2020, which it looks like we will only have about two weeks to get that report out, which will involve Canada working with the provinces, US, European Union, and UK. It's nice seeing those two as separate entities to develop more nuclear. It's a bit vague. Also, we don't have small modular reactors yet, so it's still a Future solution to a current problem, but it's nice to see some commitment there. And I'll, I'll be interested to see what the action plan comes out with. And this specifically references the, I think it's four provinces: Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, I believe, who signed on to a agreement to develop um, more investment in small modular reactors. I think it might be so,
2: Manitoba and Saskatchewan. I'd have to go check. Maybe, but yeah, the the notable thing about that is they all had conservative governments and so does the uk in fact and this is one of the technologies that i think has the least amount of political polarization around it and is probably most enthusiastically supported by conservatives absent any arguments you want to get into around whether or not natural gas is a bridge fuel or or not but uh, in terms of actual fully zero carbon technologies this one is the one that probably has the broadest political support I- until you get to be pretty far left where there's and green where it starts to
0: lose it a bit but uh, in terms of the general rate i know some i know some commies who are pretty hard on for
2: yeah but yet the was it the sunrise movement down in the states came out against the it depends what you mean by left yeah
0: it'll be interesting to see that plan when it comes out we'll definitely be looking for it in the interest of time let's go on to the next section which is pretty short relatively in terms of what the actual details are it's the carbon tax section
2: that may be maybe short in terms of details but it's almost certainly going to be the thing that dominates the most discussion in large part because this announcement was a bit of a surprise, particularly if you'd paid a lot of attention to what the Liberals were saying a little over a year ago when they were campaigning for their current government, where they promised not to raise the carbon tax and the opposition accused them of lying at the time, which makes the about face on this a bit more politically risky for them.
0: So... Under this plan, the Liberals will not raise their carbon tax in the current Parliament. The soonest carbon tax increase will happen in 2023, which, if they survive a full four years, means they won't actually raise the carbon tax during this tenure. Conveniently, at that point, well,
2: will be. It will be increasing through the pre-existing increases to the carbon tax that were already built in, and then it will just the they won't do changing it above what was already in that but no doubt there'll be the legislation to carry this through past twenty twenty-three where the rate of increase is gonna jump from ten dollars a year to fifteen dollars a year, that'll probably be brought forward within the next few months.
0: Yeah the goal is to get it to 170 by 2030. And this is the backstop. So this doesn't technically apply to us in BC because we're already on Track for this, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but the key. I think we
2: were like a hundred. We were not at one hundred seventy dollars a ton on track. I don't think
0: we've paused recently because of the pandemic, and we'll undoubtedly have to review the tenure. Point being, the goal is to get every province who isn't at one seventy by twenty thirty. If your province doesn't have a carbon tax or similar pricing scheme that the federal government deems reasonable, they will charge your residents this amount and they will cut checks to the lower-income chunk. I think it's even like majority. It's, it's like 75%. It's
2: pretty much everyone gets a, a check, more or less. You, you have to be fairly wealthy, I think, before any clawback comes in or, or a reduction in that.
0: And what's nice under this plan is they intend to make the rebate checks quarterly rather than annually, which will just help people see that money come in and make it probably more popular, or at least less hate.
2: Yeah, they, yeah they're going to be front-loading the rebates, as far as I can tell, and that's going to probably help the, uh, at least ease the pain, if not actually make it popular.
0: So while the carbon tax is going to increase quite a bit, they've actually tweaked, or they're planning to tweak, some of the clean fuel standards as well, to narrow them and just target liquid fuels. So there's some tweaking around the edges about what the carbon tax will hit. I think with the idea of giving a break to some industries, which will then be supported through what we'll talk about in the next section.
2: Which isn't ideal because one of the main benefits of a carbon tax is its breadth and how it doesn't, or how it basically treats all emissions as the same. Now, that some there's always implementation difficulties around being perfectly universal, but the underlying theory behind it is that you want to price the thing and then let individuals figure it out. If you have the government coming in and carving out exemptions or, or different rates for different amounts of fuel that's irrespective of their carbon impacts it defeats the main purpose of a carbon tax
0: indeed let's talk about how we will build canada's clean industrial advantage in other words support industry to help make many of these changes there's a lot in this section i'll try and run through it quick and then we can break down some of the more interesting bits the big part for small medium enterprise industries is to cut the corporate tax rate in half for companies that make zero emission products under supporting natural resource development and heavy industry, there's going to be a net zero challenge for large industrial emitters to get to 2050 by, to get to net zero by 2050. That'll be supported through a $3 billion strategic innovation fund for the net zero accelerator, 3 billion over five years. There's gonna be $750 million emission reduction fund to provide repayable funding to oil and gas companies to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we have apparently planned to phase out all inefficient fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. I don't know exactly what the difference between an efficient and an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy is. I just noticed that keyword. And there's going to be $1.5 in low-carbon and zero-emission fuels fund to increase the use of low-carbon fuels, hydrogen, bio-crude, natural gas, and diesel, or even that renewable natural gas and diesel are in there. There's going to be Canada's hydrogen strategy to promote the use of hydrogen fuels. We'll come back to the made in Canada manufacturing because I bet you have thoughts about that. There's gonna be 165.7 million over seven years to support clean tech in agriculture. A key thing in there is setting an emission reduction target for fertilizers. Apparently our fertilizers are getting out of hand in their emissions and we need to get to 30% below 2020 levels. We need to regulate our landfills more to collect more methane. Another $750 million over five years to support research and development through Sustainable Development Technology Canada. The government's going to make sure they do clean tech when doing government procurement wherever possible, which I'm sure you'll have thoughts on that as well. $35 million for the Canada Coal Transition Initiative, which is a just jobs transition type of program to make sure people leaving the coal industry get other jobs. $150 $150 million for dedicated infrastructure fund to support priority projects in impacted communities where, job, where transition is happening. And the $5,000 Canada training benefit will continue to help retrain workers. Made in Canada manufacturing as well, as I mentioned, is the effort to support more development of battery supply chains, promote automotive and aerospace manufacturing industries, and really trying to gear all of that towards green energy. What do you like? What do you dislike, Scott?
2: Yeah, so I'm a little mixed on it. On one hand, it would be good to you know, help develop an export industry. On the other hand, it we do want a case where we're actually just trying to be as efficient as possible when going through our procurement for the government thing and not doing as we... Governments often have a tendency to do and of trying to focus really on propping up certain domestic manufacturers rather than a broader look at the market and who can actually supply the technology the best. And in that way, it's really going to depend on what the details are.
0: Yeah, there are elements of this that I think are really good. It looks like a lot of good investments that are clearly targeted. The corporate tax rate cut is not a sustainable type of policy. I was mentioning before the show how it's like the let zero emission vehicles use the HOV lane in the short term to encourage people to drive them. That's great until everyone's driving an electric car and then everyone's just using, then the HOV lane's not an HOV lane anymore. It's just an extra lane of the highway. Similarly, the net zero challenge was super vague other than just, we'll just challenge them to do this thing. And I'm like, so what? And it seems like it's a bit tied to the $3 billion next to it, but it also seems like it's just, let's hope companies do it. And it's just tell them they have to have a plan by 2050 to get to net zero. If you're doing a mix of regulations yeah, and there are so in- do regulations.
2: And there are also industries that are just really hard to decarbonize, such as concrete and steel and None of the even theoretical technology on that are really at the point where they're ready for widespread adoption. And in that sense, the $750 million over five years probably needs to be a lot more than that if you really want to solve some of these
0: rather difficult technical problems. Similarly, the amount of money for supporting the just transition, the jobs retraining and Making sure people in coal, oil, and gas, and fossil fuel industries can get into green energy, it seems somewhat insufficient. It's more just throwing it's not even that it necessarily needs to be money as much as I don't know. maybe the Seth Klein approach would be to just create the Crown corporation that's doing the r and d in some of these other manufacturings and then just give the people who are leaving those industries the jobs directly. maybe that's too easy.
2: Okay. There's also going to be a fair bit of overlap between the existing skills in a lot of oil and gas stuff and clean technologies. If you can, all bits of heavy equipment are different, but there's some base skills that go along with them that are probably. If transferable. you know how to use a wrench,
0: you know how to We're, use a wrench. It's obviously a little more complicated than yeah.
2: That. It, it, and maybe we won't be pulling coal out of the ground, but we'll be needing to pull a lot of, you know, components of batteries and various other rare earth or, or somewhat uh, unique components that go into things like wind turbines or solar panels. And you know, the Canadian mining industry is fairly large, and it's probably going to grow as we need to pull. Change what we pull out of the ground in order to provide energy sector and energy technology. So, there will likely be, I don't think it's going to be necessarily quite as hard as some people think it is to take people out of, say, oil and gas or coal mining and, and transfer them into new jobs. It, really, though, the demand has to be there. And when you have a tight labor market, employers will find the way to make those uh, changes happen and that's what's got to fundamentally be driving it more than a necessarily front load in the skills training portion of it although that some of that's still going to be needed because there may be overlap but they're not the same
0: and let's touch on the last pillar quickly before moving into the provincial stuff where i think some of the mines is more addressed mines were actually absent I think, from this, unfortunately, this planet's an oversight I'm just realizing. But the fifth section...
2: Yeah, it's a weird thing because mines both create a bunch of environmental challenges and also are going to be part of the economics of this in rather important ways, whether it's the uranium mining that Canada... we were actually one of the larger uranium producers... And we have some of the largest reserves on the planet for that. Or, what's it, the Ring of Fire up in Northern Ontario that has a bunch of uh, metals that are going to be useful for these. It's a weird oversight not to highlight those as much because those are resource jobs that will, I think, reassure people who are concerned that these proposals mean the end of
0: the resource sector well the fifth section is embracing the power of nature this is the big commitment to plant two billion trees i think in 2015 or 2019 even the liberals talked about planting one billion trees so they've doubled that commitment while not reaching the first one i think this will be
2: i think two billion previously
0: two billion sounds familiar i remember one billion being talked about the goal now is two billion Funded via $3.16 billion over 10 years, these will be trees everywhere, crown land, cities, farms, even private rural and urban land, just get trees in the ground. There'll be an additional $631 million over 10 years to help restore wetlands, peatlands, grasslands, and agricultural lands with the goal of boosting carbon sequestration, essentially restoring the environment so that it can capture carbon and finally 98.4 million dollars over 10 years to establish what was called the natural climate solutions for agricultural fund. So, a lot of money to help protect our land. Uh, the ban single-use plastics is also in this section.
2: That's one the single-use plastics thing is something I think gets way too much attention relative to its importance, especially when it comes to climate issues and particularly in 2020 we've seen the benefits of disposability when there are health concerns or, or various things that were really you don't want to necessarily be reusing something all the time and want to be able to get rid of a contaminated object and put it into a controlled waste stream that ends up in a landfill
0: so it's it's the most tangible thing for People who live in cities and particularly who are well connected or are pretty disconnected from the carbon emissions within the carbon or within the concrete industry, as you were talking about. But those, so it's almost like you have to do some of the more symbolic things to help make sure the background things that actually make a difference get through.
2: Do you, though? I I, I can understand that to a degree, but is anyone really who is going to support this just won't because single-use plastics isn't there like
0: there are a lot of people who care though and they're loud and noisy and they vote liberal so
2: they're the people who'd vote liberal anyway whereas say the resource sector stuff that we were talking about just before those are people you could potentially win over who aren't going to be predisposed and if anything it's symbolic stuff it is for the people that aren't already going to be voting for the government.
0: They just don't want reporters to keep asking about it. Pardon? They just don't <laughs> want reporters to keep asking about it. They just want everyone keep saying, why aren't you banning single-use plastic? Fine, we'll ban single-use plastics. But now we won't do it this year because obviously there's still a value to them. And then we'll make a bunch of exemptions. It's just getting the noisy people away. <laughs> That's that plan. We're running long. How much do you want to talk about BC's first Clean BC Climate Change Accountability Report?
2: A little bit. Before we do, I I just want to quickly think a little bit about the politics of this. There's, I think, a fair bit to light, some areas that could use improvements and stuff. It's really going to be, I think, the carbon tax portion that'll make or break this and is going to be the spot where they are most valuable. Now, the various provincial governments that the ones that weren't thrilled about it before have already signaled their displeasure and opposition to this. The federal conservative parties made noises against it. And there's going to be a big temptation to try and run the same campaign. They ran the last two times opposing carbon taxes. And I don't think they're likely to be successful. The much higher state price, plus a government that is two terms in, and in some areas you start to look a little tired, is something where there's more risk for the government.
0: The big challenge with this plan, in addition to that, is that it's a 10-year plan, and a lot of this money is really spread out. So we're looking at an election in the next three years, probably sooner than that, which, like you're saying, puts a lot of these numbers at risk. If the liberals hold on, whether as a minority or as a majority, this goes ahead. Maybe as a minority, the Greens or NDP have the votes to push some of it to be more bold and to really get there. The liberals are claiming that this exceeds our 2030 targets, but maybe and gets us on the path to net zero by 2050. But maybe there's different focuses or a question about whether that's true. <laughs> After a Another you know, after another election.
2: The Greens don't have the votes to really have much leverage on this, and the NDP has. Yeah, the, the NDP hasn't been particularly on the ball about really extracting as much concessions as they can in exchange for their support. I'm not expecting a huge amount to change between this and when it finally goes to vote. But what I think it does say is that the likelihood of a f- spring election that that the Liberals trigger anyway, is lower than I would have guessed a week or two ago, if for no other reason than they're not going to want to go to the polls within the same time they're pushing through a big carbon tax increase.
0: I think we've managed to illuminate. There is more in here than a carbon tax increase. And I think a lot of it is positive and in the right direction. And we can squabble over some of the things that are missing and things we'd like more details on, but. There's a commitment to spend money to change our economy and our approach as a country, which is what we need. And it's nice to see a plan, even if it's not a perfect plan. And hopefully it's a good enough plan. Let's talk about BC's plan.
2: Yeah, so this week they released the first climate change accountability report. That This is part of the legislation that came out of the clean bc and the climate accountability act mostly just laying out where we are emissions are slightly up from 2007 levels which is where the baseline is but the but the good news is the carbon intensity of the economy has been dropping rather significantly and this is basically how much emissions we release per dollar of gdp and this is Quite important because obviously the total amount is what makes the biggest difference climate wise. We also don't want having to address climate change to impoverish us. And if we're going to both be prosperous and not emitting, that needs to mean a, a pretty strong decoupling of economic activity, which Not only do we want to stay the same, but we want to increase significantly and emissions, which need to be driven down. So the trend there is definitely in the right direction, but the overall gross emissions still need a fair bit of work to come down. But the report predicts we're going to be going in the right way on that. And in addition to that, when they released this, the government also announced they were going to implement a couple more measures to Yeah, they opt our emissions
0: targets to have our greenhouse gases be 16% below 2007 levels by 2025, rising to 40% below by 2030, and 80% below by 2050. Now, there's going to be a few more targets set out by March 31st, 2021, that will actually get us to net zero by 2050, matching the federal targets, because it would make no sense to still have that remaining 20%. There's a lot of positive in this report as well. It talks about how our goal was to have 10% of light duty vehicle sales be zero emissions by 2025. We actually almost hit that last year with 9% of vehicle sales being electric vehicles. So good job, BC, keep buying your electric cars. As well, the percentage of people using of households using heat pumps has increased to 10% in 2019, up from 3% in 2007. Definitely a good sign as we move home heating off of natural gas and onto clean electric heat pumps. So, overall, a re- pretty reasonably good report for the province, at least the way the government framed it, of course still more work to be done and there's still gaps that they talked about how remember when we talked about clean bc launching that there was a i think 25 hole in it where they hadn't accounted for the last bit of reductions there's still a hole it's smaller but it they'd wanted to f- find the final path by now and i don't think they have
2: the good news is though the federal plan basically treats the federal plan as the response that's happening, Clean BC, or BC treats their plan mostly as the main response that's happening. So the estimates are a bit conservative that way because they don't uh, bring in as much from the other levels of government's action when doing this.
0: So hopefully between these two plans and some additional pro- programs being done at the municipal level, I know a number of municipalities across Metro Vancouver have declared climate emergencies and are looking at how they can go to zero. Hopefully we can save the world.
2: And that has been PlayCoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash PlayCoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Play Coast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.